Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, on this your day, the first day of the week, and together with each other as the church, Lord, we ask that you'll give us what is needful and necessary to do that very thing, to come and adore you, to understand you as who you claimed to be, the God who took on flesh and dwelt with us in order to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by dying in our place to satisfy your Father's righteous requirements. Lord, may this Christmas be yet another way that you remind us of these things. We're in such need of reminders because they slip. Lord, in our human frame, we walk around most of the time not mindful of the most important things. So, Lord, we ask that of all places and times in your house on Sunday morning that you do that for us and bring alive what's in your old book as we study it and sing it and pray it. And, Lord, may we encourage one another in the way that we all need to be encouraged. We thank you for the truth that is so clear and precious. Lord, we have great expectations of this service today. And may we completely and totally lean on you for its realization. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you on uh, a December Sunday. And glad to have you here in person. Glad to have you also uh, by way of live stream. I would like to at least mention again what we announced last week, and that is our plans for Christmas Eve, which is only 10 days away, by the way. It's 11 days till Christmas. And our plans are to gather out on the lawn uh, for our Christmas Eve service, and we can do that all together outdoors. would advise you to space yourselves by your, your family, so we at least maintain a good visual testimony to those driving by as we're singing uh, we're going to keep it short the whole thing was planned with simplicity in mind so you don't need to worry about bringing a chair we hope you won't be standing long enough to want to sit down and uh, also we're going to ask that you leave this parking lot here for those that may want to watch but not join us in the grass uh, so we'll, we'll the rest of us will park across the street um, and we'll give that opportunity for those who might just want to watch from their car. We're hoping this will be memorable. And uh, so much is different about this year. But strangely enough, that sometimes tends to stick in one's memory years down the road, uh, unlike so many other things. We've got uh, another service planned for next week with Christmas in mind, of course. But uh, that said... I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John 17. And this will we'll complete our, our study of the 17th chapter of John. And next week, uh, the message will, will, will be a Christmas message uh, in earnest. When we're studying a, a book of Scripture, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, it's amazing how the themes often line up without uh, trying to... To do so, and here we've been celebrating Christmas, but studying basically the Easter story. 
And as David mentioned already, this is Christ's prayer. If, if you've got this open and you have a red letter edition, most except for maybe the first few words at the verse 1 are all in red. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, likely, or on his way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to his Father. And we talked about how last week, uh, it's tough for us to make sure that we give all our attention and seriousness to things that deserve attention and seriousness, and to think that we're going to eavesdrop on the prayer of the Son of God to God the Father is, is quite enough to give us pause in that regard. Uh, but in this case today, as been the case the last two weeks, uh, add to that the layer of um, not really being sure how to take all this. Uh, sometimes you find yourself where you've walked into a situation that you don't feel was meant for you. And again, Jesus is praying in the company of his disciples. But this is one of those things where you just... It's, it's kind of awkward to know how to feel because this is so important and so distant. The idea of imagining yourself listening not only to the voice of Jesus, but listening to the voice of Jesus praying for you. Where before it was for him, last week it was for his disciples. Today, if anyone ever asks you for the rest of your life, do you know anywhere in the Bible where Jesus prayed for you? You can say, John chapter 17 verses 20 through 26. I'm included in this group. So let's read this, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help. And we'll look at it verse by verse, one at a time. Verse 20, John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our portion today. Make it live to us. Help us understand it. Help us obey it. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Back to verse 20. Just to make sure we've got our bearing, look at these words. I do not ask for these only. That's a reference to the disciples from last week. But also, so he's making an addition for those who will believe in me through their word. We're reading one of these disciples is 
word written under inspiration uh, that you might believe. We've been on about this for two years now. But that is what is being referred to here is you and I believers in the gospel that was written. So Jesus names those who he's about to pray for in addition. So the same prayer is no longer confined to the disciples only, but includes those who will believe as a result of their witness. This assumes, if, you're, if you know what's ahead in the episodes to follow, that their witness will prove effective. I'm glad it was. We are living proof of the effectiveness of the witness of the first disciples, the apostles, that is. Not only that, but it also expects their coming failure to only be temporary. If you've never seen the rest of the story in the next episode, when they're scattered after the arrest in Gethsemane, you'd think, well, that was a nice plan, but it's doomed. Well, that's only going to be temporary. And Jesus had mentioned your word three times in this prayer so far, referring to the words that the Father had given him, that he would in turn give to the disciples who would in turn give it to us. But now he's speaking of, of their word, which would be this gospel we're reading and others. And just to be technical here, that signals a transition in messenger, not in message. The disciples don't have a new message. It's the same message that Jesus gave them, which was the same message that God the Father gave Jesus. It's just the messenger was Jesus. Then the messenger will be the disciples. And then their messengers win more messengers all the way to today where your messengers as well. Now, uh, pay attention in this 21st verse here. And a lot of this is technical. I hope at the end to be able to, to wrap this all up. So much of this sounds like repetition, but we're going to try to unravel this piece by piece. Pay attention, in verse 21, to the in me, in you, and in us. And depending on your translation, the, the grammar may be slightly different. But look at 21. That they all may be one. He's referring to us, those that the disciples won to Christ through their testimony. Just as you, Father, are in me. So that's the Father in Jesus. And then I in you, that's Jesus in the Father, that they also may be in us, that's you and me in the Father and the Son. And so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So at this point, the, the burden, the point of the prayer is for oneness. Do you get that? He wants these, these people, including us, to be one just as. So the Father and the Son are one. Well, he wants all his followers to be one in them and one with another. Oneness. I've heard this used uh, as unity over and over and over again. Every, every commentary I look at, it's unity. Um, I like the word oneness better because one is the, the word that, that Jesus is using here. And uh, sometimes unity kind of carries so many other agendas tucked away in there as well from just what we hear and, and read we're focused on the scriptures here. So it's a oneness. And the idea, they, the church, are to be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. Big question, what for? It sounds nice. What's the purpose? Well, he tells us that the world may believe that Jesus is who he said he was. That they may believe that you sent me. Isn't that really 
the big question, is this Jesus actually who he claims to be? When John said that he was from the beginning, was God, was with God, and then in 14 that he became flesh to explain to us who the Father is, is all that true? If it's not true, we're wasting our time and we are all most miserable for empty foolish traditions all dressed up and nothing to talk about on a day like this of course we believe that it's absolutely true but how is this supposed to work because uh, there are two types of people I think in the world there are those that need other people to feel alright and there are those who feel like they'd be better if they were the only ones on the planet alone Extroverts, introverts. And really, I'm exaggerating there. All of us need people. But uh, some folks are, I think, more naturally um, open to this idea of unity or oneness, sharing things, where, where others, um, that desert island uh, with just a palm tree and some water and, well, some food would be a good idea from time to time God makes us all different but there's something to say for this oneness that he's speaking of it's not optional so how does it work well we could start deconstructing this or just supposing what it could mean are we supposed to think from this that all Christians should look and sound and act exactly the same is that what this is all about? That we should look like clones? Because if that's the case, it would be uh, actually inconsistent with the Son and the Father He's praying to. Because though they were very one in that they are the same God, they are very distinct in their persons, right? Even to mention the Holy Spirit who's distinct. So you've got some diversity together with that unity, right? Unity in diversity. Almost kind of like the word university where they got lots of subjects but it's all under one administration so they've got diversity under the unity. Well, that's what's going on here too. So it, it, it couldn't be that. It's safe to say that he's not calling for a uniformity since he and the Father are distinct from one another and have differing functions. So it's not a... Uniform is a good way to look at it. I don't know if you've ever worked where a uniform was necessary. Closest for me was uh, the stuff that uh, the truck would bring by every Friday and we'd have five days worth of uh, blue pants and a blue jacket and a white shirt that had my name and then Ford Lincoln Mercury on the other side of it. I liked it because I never had to choose what to wear and I didn't have to do the laundry and I could spill battery acid or transmission fluid or whatever on it and I didn't have to say, baby, can you wash this for me? I'd just ball it up. They'd come get it and they'd bring it in. But we all looked the same, except for our name was different. There was uniformity among those of us that, that worked there. That's not what this is supposed to be. Um, I thought of different ways to maybe try to think different angles here. Uh, and I'd read one that made sense where a guy said, what if we gathered some of the great Christians from the centuries of history together under one roof for one discussion? Uh, the invitation list might include, say, Augustine, and then maybe Luther, 
and then maybe Calvin, and then Wesley, and Whitfield, and Spurgeon, uh, Moody, Sunday, uh, Graham. Now, if we put them all in one room, would we have any trouble out of them? That's a pretty diverse group. Could we expect a unanimous vote among that group? Probably not often. But underneath all that complexity, don't you believe that there would be a oneness? Because they all understand the basics. I think that would be the truth. And the more that they upheld Jesus, their discussion focused on Him, the more unified they would be. I'm sure of it. So, Jesus is not praying that we should all be the same. Though, uh, it certainly seems that many Christians would assume such. Um, I'm sure you've met or been in contact or seen from a distance or maybe right in the middle of some Christians who think that all other Christians should be exactly like they are. They read the same Bible translation, study the same books, listen to the same music, wear the same clothes, eat the same food, educate their kids the same way. My uh, don't get in trouble alarm just went off. Uh, some of the some of the people most different from me have actually introduced me to some of the best food I've ever eaten. And some of the folks that have changed the way I think about the Bible have been people that were very different from me. Uh, God's family is a very diverse family and on purpose. You cannot square all that Paul said about the gifts of the Spirit without understanding there's different gifts for different things all in one body. So this is not at all uniformity, but it is a oneness. It seems quite clear that the church's final goal from this prayer is not to be one with each other, but to be one in Christ. And again, that illustration from last week about the 100 pianos tuned to the same tuning fork are in tune with each other, not because they were tuned to each other, but because they were tuned to the same standard. And if we all are tuned, our hearts that is, to the heart of God, our hearts will be tuned with each other. So most likely the language of oneness described here in Jesus' prayer, and to go back and pick up something from verse 21, that they also may be in us. Again, the in me, in you, that's, that's the Father and the Son, but also in us, points back, I believe, contextually, just to a couple of chapters earlier in 15 where the vine and the branches were described. Remember that? Where it's, it's a dependence as a branch on the vine. And, and you're one with the rest of the branches when you're in the vine. But you're also dependent on that vine. Get cut off from the vine, the branches are of no use and they die. So that's very helpful to help us take shape of everything here. These people will not only identify with God through Christ, but be completely dependent on Him for life and fruitfulness. Even though, and here's another angle to look at this, this is a supernatural and spiritual oneness. 
and not necessarily a oneness having to do with organization or institution. It is no doubt meant to have an outward expression. Because it, it would it it'd be easy for us to just wipe the the organization and the institution of the churches, even among denominational differences, as being, well, it's not that at all. But it's also supposed to be visible. This has to be perceived even by the lost world around us. Whatever this oneness is, it should be obvious enough that a lost person could look at it and say, well, there's something of substance. Because look at the last part of the verse. It will convince part of the world that Jesus was sent by the Father. Whatever this oneness is that we're supposed to have that Jesus is praying for. That they may believe that you sent me. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me. That, here's, here's the hinge. They may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So there's two in, uh, upgrades in this version of what was just said in the previous verse. Not just one, but perfectly one. It's a little better. And then not only that the world knows that Jesus was sent by God, but also that this Jesus loved these people the way God loved Jesus. There's a lot to th- think of there so keep it all in your head take another step the glory mentioned there at the beginning of verse 22 that the father had given Jesus was the task of redeeming men to God that was his purpose that's why he's here uh, when he says father now glorify me he's, he's talking in terms of I'm right here at the cross hours away my greatest glory that you've put me here for is what the world will, will think of as absolute failure But that's what's meant by glory. That would involve the path of lowly service ending with the cross. So again, it's glory for Jesus. It's lowly service or confusion to the world. But for the disciples, the task would be much the same. For them, it would be the foolishness of preaching. Something the world would consider insignificant, lowly. Christ's church will be gathered to the glory of God the Father through their work. So when he says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. Not in the same way, but they're participating in it. If you want to make semantics here, you know, words that have slight meanings but explain quite a bit. Here's, here's what you can write down. By sharing in his calling, the disciples participate in his glory. They're not sharing his glory. He shares his glory with no one. But they're participating in it. They're part of it. As commissioned by God, sharing his calling of lowly service, they're participating in his glory and are united with him and with one another. So you could say this, and I don't know if you'd get uh, high marks in theology class on a quiz, but basically God and man together are involved in bringing life into being from death to life. All of that done by God Not by works, lest any man should boast, but he's choosing to use us as part of the process through 
preaching, teaching, sharing, from a pulpit or from a coffee shop, you and a friend, or at the breakfast table, mom and son or daughter. It's not much different. He lets us in on what he's doing. All right, so having repeated twice in different words, just ever so slightly changed or reversed, the same idea in you, in me, in us. So that's Father, Son, and followers. Having repeated this theme twice now, it seems that the secret to this oneness that Jesus is praying for is along the lines of an indwelling. How else do you describe I in you, you in me, them in us? Christ indwelling the believer, the Father indwelling Christ. It makes sense that the disciples had some measure of oneness already, right? They've been together for three years. I would, I would say uh, even Band of Brothers doesn't have much on these twelve, then eleven. They've been through the trenches a different way. The worst of it all, their crucible is coming up. And there's a oneness there, but this is saying that, that that's not what he's referring to. There's, there's, there's another entire level of oneness here. And I'd say the same thing for the church or Wake Chapel. You, you, you've, you folks had a oneness that could be felt on the first visit. You've been together for a good long while. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. There's, there's more to it. There's part of it. And the reason why you've got what you've got is on account of that. It's a symptom. But what he's describing here to become perfectly one. That they may become perfectly one in verse 23. Will be to draw on the wealth of love that actually tie the father and the son together. I mean, read it back as one whole verse. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Now, this is what Carson, one of my favorite commentators of this study with a stack of books that I use each week, describes this thought as breathtakingly extravagant. Why in the world would the Lord share what He's got between Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in such an extravagant way with those that He not only created out of dirt, but who turned around and walked off first chance they got? This is extravagant love. Do you remember... This would be back months, but just a few chapters ago when we, uh, the difference between the 11th chapter and the 12th chapter, the beginning of chapter 12 had to do with uh, Mary and breaking open a very expensive uh, box of perfume such that it aggravated some of the men at, at its waist, they thought. It was so expensive. And we talked about how that was extravagant, uh, but the previous context was about expediency where uh, the Jewish leaders Caiaphas 
had decided that it'd be better that one man die before this whole nation is ruined in some type of revolt and Rome comes in and destroys us all. So the best thing to do, expediency would demand that we've got to get rid of this one guy. And, and we had definitions for that. Expediency is the quality of being convenient and practical despite possibly being improper or immoral. That's what they were concerned with. Expediency, taking care of themselves. And that's the way we kind of look at things. If we're in charge, usually that's when expediency comes into play. We, we, we've, got, we've got the credit to be able to do some expedient things that others would might actually be wrong or immoral, but it doesn't bother. We're taking care for the common good, right? Good grief. This whole year has had many discussions in this one idea. But then over against that, you've got this woman and this extravagant gift. Extravagance is lack of restraint in spending money or using resources, a thing on which too much money has been spent or which has been used up too many resources. That's kind of the way Carson's describing this. Why in the world would you waste what you've got between the Father, Son, and Spirit on a group of people? broken your heart that's extravagance why do such a thing well not only will the oneness of God's children be a witness to Christ's message that's the first stage he's saying Lord pull them together as one the world needs to see what that looks like to convince them that you sent me to this earth but then there's the second leg of it but also the realization that those children have been caught up into the same love that the Father has for His precious only begotten Son. That may be the final convincing. Wait a minute. That Jesus on a bloody cross was God's only begotten Son? He, just, he not only sent Him here to this earth to tell them the truth, but He killed Him. His own son in their spot to forgive them of their sins. That's crucial to the whole idea. These last two verses seem to form a conclusion to the prayer as a whole. Almost as if they're separated. Um, 25 and 6 begins with a new address, actually the section there, beginning in verse 24, with Father and then Righteous Father. To hold on to that idea of this extravagant love, and we'll add a few more pieces. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. That's actually where he's going. To see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So this undoubtedly refers back to what we learned in chapter 14. Uh, where he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare the place for you, I will come back. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you these things. Um, but we're to be together. That, that's doubtless what he's saying here. Um, a prepared place in his heavenly glory but again true to John's character as far as the what and when and where and how all that works out he doesn't say no more than in chapter 14 that's for later 
But on that day, we'll see Jesus' full glory with no limitations and understand its full significance. Even in excess of what the disciples saw at the transfiguration where they saw, again, a glimpse of His glory. But this is John in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be as future has not yet appeared. But when, or but we know that when He appears, so He's now talking a little bit about whens and wheres and hows, we shall be like Him for or because... We shall see him as he is. Now that's just big fat question mark, blank check. We, we, we don't have any reference point for what that'll mean. But John seems to think that the closer we are like him, the more we'll be able to see him as he really is and ourselves as we really are. Right now we're behind that glass darkly that Paul's talking about. But then it'll be face to face. Um, look at verse 25 O righteous father so he refers to him as father in 24 righteous father in 25 there's a reason for that even though the world does not know you and here I want you to keep track of these world does not know I know you and these know that you have sent me so you got the word know three times the first one is the world, what the world doesn't know. And the second one is who the Son does know, and that's the Father. And then the third is what Jesus' followers know, and that is that God sent Him. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And now again, this one last reciprocal in them and I in them. But uh, let's not leave a good theological lesson on the table here. Righteous Father. What's the significance of righteous Father? He calls him Father and then he adds the word righteous. Well, look what he says about this righteous Father. The world doesn't know him. Jesus knows him. The disciples know that he sent Jesus. How else would you acknowledge one who's capable of a judgment in deciding that the group who doesn't know me are eternally punished and the group that does know me through the Son are eternally righteous? A righteous father. A fair father. Who gets to say? Live, die. Forever punished or forever glorified. The righteous Father. So when he says it that way, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. So the world doesn't know, but Jesus' followers do know. One is rejected, the other is accepted. And then verse 26, I made known to them your name. This was really his, his life and his food. If we went back to chapter 4, the disciples urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples asked him, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
That's the business for which he was on this planet, to do that very thing. Make known God to these men who will make known God to the world. One more important point, and then I want to tie this to our, our Advent candle. I just noticed that one of them has gone out. So I'm going to light two in a moment. The air conditioner thing. The important point, this is what you should take home from this passage, is that it's not simply to make these followers of Jesus the objects of God's love. Of course we are the objects of God's love, but it also promises that that love will do something to us and for us for the benefit of others. As God is continually made known to us, look back in verse 26, I made them known, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. So there's a continuance. He's continually making the word of God known to us through the scriptures now. For what purpose? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what we're looking at is God's own love for his son will become our own. Put another way, the love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love among the persons of the Godhead. How has the church managed not to destroy itself over 2,000 years? Well, the special recipe of love that originates in the triune Godhead. Because what we've got is standard equipment as fallen human beings is a self-serving love that does nothing but destroy us. Some of my favorite passages in Scripture are the one that describes the awfulness of, of who we truly are. Jeremiah seventeen nine is one of my favorites where our hearts are desperately wicked. We can't know them. Hearts are deceitful above all things. There's the passage in Titus. You once were, and that whole laundry list of selfishness and, and mean, hated and hating one another. But when the grace of God appears, He saved us. That's what this is talking about. And if you were to try to can all this today, concentrate it all, and then crack the lid off of it every now and then to experience it emotionally, what, what emotion would you use? Or, or what emotion uh, do you think would describe? I'm trying to put this in, in, its, in, in all of its theological ramifications. In finding a long-lost love dating back to the Garden of Eden that has been wondrously and magnificently restored to you, how would you describe that? It'd have to be joy. That's what the pink candle is. That's the theme, joy. Jesus not only is hope and not only loves us, but he brings joy and peace will be next week. But... How do you describe this awkward stuff we're reading about Jesus and his relationship with the Father, but actually extending that in love to us? Would that not be a 
joyous thought, right? How else do you describe it? But with us, and again, trying to tie a ribbon not only around this passage, but around the third week of Advent, our oneness is a reflection of the oneness that had always existed between Jesus and the Father. And we learn through the opening portion of John's gospel that this is what he came to do. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that's Jesus, every time we read Word. He was in the beginning with God, that's where he was. Then that Word, Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then verse 18, no one's ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus' purpose was to come tell us the plan that had been decided between them since before the world was ever created, and that was that when we became lost through sin, He would come rescue us through salvation. Give us back what we once had to take us back to the garden. Now here's the thing I want to show you and how I want to tie this together. Look back at verse 25 and listen to what Jesus says. I think of, of, if this is an intimate passage, the height of it, I believe, is about three sections in. O righteous Father, comma, even though the world does not know you, comma, I know you. Now what do you know about the way Jesus knows the Father? Something. But how much of that something represents the whole? Not very much. Now, you'll use those terms to describe people you know, and we're kind of limited in our language. I could say, I know my wife. I could say, I know the guy uh, across town that uh, rang up my groceries at Walmart. That's when I met him, but I, I know his name. I saw it on his shirt. Those words describe the same thing, but there's a vast difference between there. Of the people on this planet, I know my wife better than anyone else. And that's nothing compared to what she knows about me. It's not even close. Um, so for Jesus to say, I know you in reference to his father... It's just a glimpse of something that we'll know about later, but would be the absolute epitome of the definition of intimacy, right? So what does that say? Only a handful of hours away from this same Jesus, from his same mouth, crying in agony, Why have you forsaken me? And what's the purpose of that? For the purpose of what we've been reading. Your oneness is at the expense of His. Temporarily. But for you to be one with Jesus and the Father requires that Jesus and the Father be separated. So our joy is at Christ's expense. 
in the form of sorrow. In order for that peace that we're going to look at next week to be a reality, that joy has its opposite. I mean, this, don't we understand things best in contrasts? This is a time of year where you might get a 35-degree day and then a 65-degree day. But that warm day really feels great after a really cold day. You might be the type of person that would switch those. But there's the contrast. Or having someone visit would mean more to someone who lives in loneliness than someone who lives in a house full of people. So to talk about joy to a group of Americans who even in 2020 have a lot to be thankful for, it might help us to actually look at that idea of why have you forsaken me? That sorrow and separation may help us more with the oneness and joy than anything else. Looking at it from the opposite perspective. So for sinners to realize true joy, oneness with the Father, it will require Christ's separation from the Father. All of those themes we'll explore as we move forward. But let me light this candle. We will pray and then we'll conclude speaking in these terms of joy and peace and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the contrasts of joy and sorrow, life and death, love and hate, hope and absolute despair, peace and hostility. Lord, with every last one of those things, to give us all the good, you took all the bad so that we could understand what that oneness business is all about. Lord, teach us through these things. Open our eyes. Bust up the stony parts of our heart. And then if you see fit in your great glory, kindness, to have us share these things with someone else and be witness to the very changing of life and death peace hostility Lord use us to win others we ask all this in your precious name Amen